You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Tanya Pinkins, and you're listening to my podcast, You Can't Say That, on the Broadway Podcast Network. I envy my next guest. She gets to call a spade a spade, and she doesn't get branded an angry black woman or difficult, which is what I hear about myself from people who don't know me at all. And she gets to create in every venue imaginable, from Broadway to Off-Broadway to regional theater to the West End to television and film. Maybe it's because she's so remarkably talented and makes so much money for everybody. Please join me in welcoming the brilliant artist, Katori Hall. My name is Tanya Pinkins, and you are listening to You Can't Say That podcast on the Broadway Podcast Network. Um, My guest today, I'm so excited. I am sure that there is no other black woman, but I think that there's no (laughs) other woman who is working creatively at the level of success and brilliance on as many fronts as this woman. She's currently represented on Broadway with the musical Tina. She's an Olivier Award-winning playwright for The Mountaintop. Um, Tina just came from the West End. She is married. She is the mother of two children under five, five and under. Uh, She is the showrunner on a new Stars TV show called Pussy Valley, yes, Pussy Valley on IMDb, it. and um, she has plays <laughs> that are all over the country. I, when I met her in 2012, I think she already had written a dozen plays. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I want to know what do you attribute this amazing <laughs> capacity to just create, create and express at such a high level? Insanity. Well, okay, more. Let's be more insane. I mean, more insane um, people. It's interesting. Okay, I think the first thing is being a black person, being a black woman, there is this need, and it's it probably is unfortunate, it may be subconscious, unconscious, this need to kind of represent and to prove other people mm. <laughs> wrong. Um, so, you know, oftentimes, particularly when I started creating, I would say like my first plays, like my first plays were not critical darlings. Um, I wouldn't even call myself a critical darling, but I just felt like I needed to always be crafting narratives, you know, with black women, particularly at the center. And so knowing that there's this huge scarcity of material for black actresses, black folks, I was like, well, I'm just going to like fulfill, you know, everybody's needs and dreams. I'm like, I'm going to get everybody a part. You get a part. You get a part. You get a part. So I kind of think it first comes from that place mm-hmm. of just wanting to die and have left a hundred plays on the shelf or 10 TV shows out mm. there or um, just knowing that my ancestors, they were not given the opportunities. They were not given the platform. And so it's like, damn, it's, it's, it's 2019, 2020 next year. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I gotta, I gotta create another movie. I gotta create another TV show. So it's this kind of like, fervent need to exist 
on a community level and I think just on a personal level, just proving people wrong. Because at the beginning, you know, people were just like, oh, you know, you're doing that black stuff and then you're writing about black people that even black people don't really want to go to the theater and see. You know, they cussing and fussing, they pole, they this, they that, they dealing drugs and that one a prostitute. And it's just like, well, those people exist. Mm-hmm. And I come from those people. And when I go home for Christmas or I go home for Thanksgiving, I see those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you love those people. And I love those people. And so I want to you know, create empathy. Because I love them. I want people to love them as much as I do. And so you know, it does, I would say, come from that place, which is almost kind of like a, I don't know, a political need. It's an odd thing that, you know, are, are sort of considered the great American playwrights, Eugene O'Neill, mm-hmm. you know, Tennessee, Arthur. They were writing about working class people. Yeah. And that was honorable. And now today I feel like there's so much about just ennui. <laughs> <laughs> it plays about ennui. We want to see ourselves be just doing nothing doing about nothing. It's funny. I must say I don't go and see those plays. I always feel as though if I'm going to spend my time at the theater or if I'm going to create anything for the theater, any story, it, it got to be something that is about some kind of change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I also just feel like, you know, they were writing, they were writing working class people, but I feel as though when working class meets whiteness, it's seen as honorable. Mm, for, well, that. <laughs> Except for Lucy Thurber, because, you know, they don't like her either. They don't Isn't like, that interesting? They don't I like don't Lucy. get it. Because she's I writing about poor white people, and they're it. not supposed to exist. They're not supposed to exist. I love her work. I love her work, too. Um, She's, I, I, yeah, just one of my, I guess, she, I wouldn't call her a new playwright, but just, you know, a female playwright that, you know, she's kind of writing people. my heart. Right. Like, I, I want to see those. those people. I know the people in her plays, even though I don't come from Appalachia, but yeah. she's writing what I grew up with. Yeah. So where's the energy come from? Energy. So it's funny. My assistant was talking to me yesterday. He was like, bitch, why you don't drink coffee? <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. And I have a lot of energy. I have too. a lot of energy. And I was like, I just don't know why. Yeah, I've never needed the kind of supplement. Um, I just have this fuel that comes from just, passion. Yeah. It's just like I I want to see all this stuff. And, and also, I feel like I can. Like, I feel like a lot of people are, are like, oh, I can only do this type of work. I can only write plays. I could only um, write short stories or novels. And I just feel as though for some reason, and I think it has a lot to do with just I always had a lot of interest growing up. I just feel like, well, if I read a book about it, can I do it? Right. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I was so, with Brandon Jacob Jenkins. We were talking about you, and he was saying he felt that you were the most unsung of his generation. Mm. Particularly because you do everything. You've written so many kinds of people, so many kinds of stories. It's like you read about it, you develop characters about it. And this sensuality and the passion and the language and the place is just extraordinary in your work. Mm. Oh, Brandon! <laughs> Brandon, say that about me. I know that boy. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Unsung. I think, you know. I mean, you're sung. You're getting a lot of play. But, you know, you're working. <laughs> but maybe a lot, not a lot of respect. I would say that I'm probably not as respected as I don't, other... I, what does that mean? What I mean is... Um, it's kind of connected to that thing of the whole kind of critical 
um, like how does how are playwrights unfortunately defined as being good in our industry? And right now they're defined as being good if they're writing about slavery and we <laughs> slaves or we getting killed <laughs> or we begging for us to stop being oppressed. That's what I feel at the moment, and I'm not even interested in it. And I'm like, we are so much more than that. We're we have shown that we are so much more than that. Like the ones of us that survived slavery, we are outstanding. The weak of us died out mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we are we are just like the strongest but what do you mean by plan? that you really feel like people feel are like kind of getting validated or getting a pat on the yeah. back look if you look at all the plays that were nominated for awards last season somebody mm. was either dying or we were slaves mm-hmm. or something like that yeah it's that thing of like how do you, um uh, because the critical mass is who they are they are who they are they're they tend to be white men they tend to be gay white men um there is this kind of lack of cultural knowledge mm-hmm. and an unwillingness to accept um, and critique from a place of not understanding um, and being okay with that. So anything that kind of caters to a particular kind of, I'll call it the white male aesthetic in terms of Western narrative, how Western narratives are, are constructed, anything that kind of caters to that um, kind of, container or structuring of a of a of a story they tend to applaud it anything that feels like um it 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 is created specifically to teach um uh someone about you or your culture that it it tends to be validated and then those of us who are kind of writing without this idea or feeling of gays black or white or anybody um we tend to you know, a lot of us are, the, I think people who are doing that, they're just presenting black folks and blackness as as it is without trying to explain it. And I think that kind of infuriates um, those people who are, who are tasked with trying to, you know, write about and provide context for a, a mostly white audience. Um, it, it's kind of, it must be frustrating for them. But we tend to, you know, keep on writing whatever we write. Right. And like it's frustrating for us to just be all day long every day. Like they live with a little bit of frustration for like two hours or (laughs) the time it takes to write something and be frustrated. And like, I can't do this well. Oh, my God, I've got to wrestle with I'm going to have to go learn. I have to do some research to figure out how to actually do my job better in the context of something I don't already have experience and knowledge of. Yes, exactly. Um, It's funny. I was... um, I was doing some research on Lynn, uh, Lynn Nottage, and I looked at her first uh, New York Times review by Ben Brantley. I think it was actually his first review he ever wrote. Um, and it was very interesting. He was very, it was uh, Crumbs from the Table of Joy. And just very dismissive of it and called the title Sentimental. Not knowing that that title is taken from a Langston Hughes poem. So it's this thing of folks not knowing our gods, our illusions, and being given this huge, very impactful platform to tear us to shreds without understanding who our gods are. Mm-hmm. So I always like think about that and and be like, girl, you know, just keep on writing your, you know, fifty eleven plays and your fifty eleven this and your fifty eleven that. I'm trying to become a film director like you. Well, I saw Archibucha, which is a beautiful <laughs> film. I actually worked with your DP on a film. What? Right, we did Brian. um with um yeah, we did um Brian. The Artist's Wife um with Lena 
That was in Connecticut, Lena right? Olin. Yeah, we sh- out in Southampton and mm-hmm. stuff. We shot that, but Archibald is beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful looks, Black looks and beautiful, um, and yeah, a powerful story. Thank you know, you. It was, um, like there's a there's a feature film in that. Yeah, it, there is a feature film in that. You know, <laughs> I want to know. I want to know if the did Black Cowboys. Did he, get he his did not get his jet ski and back? Jet ski he did back not get and, it back. Yeah, it was very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah, and and no one is talking about. I mean, because I don't know. I didn't see a list of your publicist for you, so it's not being. Do you have a publicist that's listed I on IMDb? I don't have okay. a publicist. People keep on like, girl, you need a publicist. I'm Clearly, like, you don't need a publicist. You work and doing what you want to do. I think people get publicists <laughs> to try to get a job. Really? I don't know. I don't, I don't have. One, I don't so. have one. Yeah. But you also uh, on your series, all women directors. I did. I, I fucking did it. I don't know how. It was hard. Why? What made it hard? So you would think that the subject matter of Pussy Valley, which is, as you said, on IMDb, P-Valley. Right. Because <laughs> uh, people scared of pussy. They were scared of it. They couldn't have like, oh, no, we can't say that out loud. Um, mm. You would think because of the subject matter, you know, you would be able to, well, maybe, why am I saying that? Why am I assuming that women want to talk about pussy or women want to, you know, help to tell a story that, um, you know, centers marginalized women, you know, you know, very much in the forefront um, in that it's a it's a show about strippers, mm-hmm. strippers down south, strippers in Mississippi. Um, I think a lot of people assume that it's going to be about a bunch of titties and ass, but it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, the strip club is being used as this prism to dissect what the intersection of race, class, and gender in America is, which I think every strip club is that, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So um, you would think that, you know, women would be like, you know, running, coming to interview, but it was challenging. I had a lot of women who were like, oh, I, I don't, you know, clutching the pearls. I don't want to, you know, waste my talent on that. Um, there was one, yes, there was actually someone who's like, I don't want to use my talent to use, to tell that story. Okay. Um, there were people who were like, well, why can't she want to be a tennis coach? Like, why she want to be a stripper? Why can't she be one, you know? I'm like, because ain't nobody really playing tennis like that in the hood in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, but despite, you know, some women's kind of respectability politics, I would say, I um, found through a lot of interviewing Um, you know, a group of women who were passionate about the show understood what I was trying to do and and what I was trying to explore. Um, And I, you know, I said to my network stars, like, from Jump, like, I'm committed to having an all-female directing slate. And so, not to say that stars said this, um, because they had actually done the same thing, I want to say with Vida, which is Tanya Siracho's show. Okay. Another amazing playwright. Um... But, you know, we had to kind of admit how hard it was because it's that thing of people being ready for what your show is trying to do. And what I mean by that, it's like just having the experience, Mm -hmm. the resume to come onto a set and build a show from scratch with a a showrunner. Mm -hmm. It's not a lot of women who have been given that opportunity. So if you don't have the experience, how are you going to come in and and know what to do? And even besides that, it's the thing of just like when you are on set and you're a woman, you have to kind of you have to prove yourself. And it's very unfortunate. You know, my my pilot director um, was actually making the shift from 
music videos, uh, Karina Evans. And, you know, she's told me so many stories. Like, if, even if you go on her Instagram right now, you know, she's talking about in her, her latest job where someone asked, you know, like, where the donuts were. You know what I'm saying? Just, like, not assuming, right, assuming. that she actually was, you know, how the boss. Right. She's the boss. She's she running the set today and for the, and for the next couple of weeks. And so it's it's that thing of you, it, it, and then sometimes you're not questioned, but you question yourself. And so you know, um, I was just very blessed to have the support of of this network and um, who were you know we were willing to wait um, and and figure out people's schedules and just so that we could have this all female slate because I was very much interested in what a female gaze perspective of this world is. And quite frankly, I think a female gaze perspective uh, of any story is has a lot to do with like, how do you, you know, where is the focus? Mm-hmm. You know, it. where is the camera? <clears throat> is it over her shoulder? Like, are you embedded in her, you know, POV? Like camera placement, movement, um, you know, lingering versus, you know, you know, lingering on someone's breasts versus being like, no, her breasts are a part of her job. We ain't got to linger on them. Mm-hmm. Like, what is she going through? And mm-hmm. it's, it's really about, you know, those choices. And so I had a lot of conversations with the, the directors. <laughs> but I will say, not everybody had a female gaze. When it came. I'm sure. Wow. <laughs> which, I, which I found not every, you know, woman who is director has a female gaze. Wow. And so um, what is that difference when a woman doesn't have a female gaze? I think um, <clears throat> there was one instance in particular where there was a, a lap dance that we shot. And so the, the, the character is, you know, doing this dance for these two guys who are doing this business transaction. And, and, and she's kind of part of the transaction. Like, you know, if you come, no, no don't go nowhere. Don't go nowhere. She's going to dance for us. She's going to dance for us. Kind of the, um, do I need to move? Um, kind of like the, um, the carrot dangling, right? Right, right, right. So <laughs> the first time we shot it, it was like no coverage. Like it was a wonder. And they say like wonders don't exist in TV. And they fucking don't. And they shouldn't, be, and particularly in this instance, where you had this beautiful, gorgeous woman sitting on these two guys' lap. Her tits are out, and you can't understand or hear anything because you're looking at her beautiful breasts. Like, it was insane. So I was like, fuck, how are we going to? Um, and it was a mistake in that. That day, I think we ended up running out of time. I think time wasn't managed well on set. And so at the end of the day, we were like, oh, shit, we got we to gotta shoot the scene. Let's just do it in the Warner instead of being. And it was funny because they had prepared, you know, for the coverage, right? Right. So, you know, studio sees it. And they're like, right. Katori, what the fuck are you trying to do? And I'm like, but it's sad in the strip club. But even I knew that the story was not being told. Right. Because if I'm just focused on her breasts, you know, I ain't hearing nothing. So um, I, I assured them, I was like, with with coverage, um, story clarity and character development will follow. So we ended up having to um, reshoot it 
and you know break it down. You had all kinds of shots and your medium, your close up, you know, dolly in, dolly out, you know, reverse, yada 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 yada. Um, and then you know we put it together, and it was like you know a glorious scene in in the in the second episode. Like it's really beautiful, um, really really smart in that you don't actually you see her breasts like twice really, but you're watching how she's listening to the business transaction mm-hmm. so that she can one-up them later. Because it's about how the power, power dynamic can switch in a, in a space like that. Yes, it's a space of exploitation, but there are some women who can find pockets of liberation within that space. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, to me, was just like an example, kind of subverting the assumption of like all women are being exploited in that space. Right. But it was so crazy that the director had this very male gazy um, um, entry point into that particular scene, which made... It looked like we were exploiting a woman. A woman. Right. So it's so tricky. It's yeah. so tricky. I think about that because, like, I don't remember her name, mm-hmm. um, but she was, she funded um, John Brown. <laughs> and she was oh. this maid who worked for these stockbrokers, and she would listen to the tips. Yeah. Yeah. And she found a white man who would um, invest for her. So she was very, very wealthy until he died, and then his wife mm. didn't give her anything. Mm. But Someone hired me to, uh, you know, do a, a race read of their s- screenplay, uh-huh, uh-huh. and uh, oh, you know, they do that race reads. Yes, that's interesting. It, what? It, yeah, okay, a, we'll talk about that later. It, it had a black woman in it, and it was like some murders were happening, and mm-hmm. girls were disappearing, and a white woman comes to town to to find out where her daughter went, and it turns out the black woman's daughter is missing, and mm. the, the two women don't get along, but then they suddenly get along, and somehow the white woman's fight gives the black woman the right to fight. And so the woman's like, wanting oh, me Lord. to tell about this thing. And I'm like, well, first <laughs> and foremost, the black woman already knows what's going on, who did it, and yeah. why. And As why? Because we are treated like we're invisible. So we know all so we your know business. everything. We know everything. Yeah. Yeah. We know all your business. You just ain't worried about us telling. So the, the black woman not knowing, it, d- it doesn't make any sense. Okay. Interesting. She knows, and this has been going on forever. She knows who. And the question is why they suddenly switched to a black girl. They've been doing this for decades, and now they got a black girl. That's the question for me. Yeah. What and how did they respond when you gave? They them? were like, oh, like they had never it's like a light bulb, like a light bulb, like oh, that this black woman in this town actually has some agency and some knowledge mm-hmm. in a place that she has grown up and her whole family has grown up in. It was like they were grateful for yeah. the information. Whether they changed the script, I do not know. Yeah, we always figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how do how do we get here if we didn't figure out how to in in this exploitative space that is America, figure out how to liberate ourselves in in big ways and small ways. Laughter being, you know, a small way. A great one. One of my friends <laughs> says that the only people Jesus saved was the the American slaves because we bought into that narrative and we was like we going to be we going to be exalted for all of this suffering that we going through. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I we'll see. That's my theory. When promised land comes. <laughs> I don't know where the promised land is. I also want to ask you in this TV world, because mm-hmm. I don't know, I hear from so many playwrights going into the TV yeah, world. Yeah, a lot of us are like, Whoo! But you seem to be, um, so I hear from so many playwrights that they're in the world and they're just fighting for their vision and mm. that everybody's having their vision being turned into, you mm. got to center the white person in the story. Mm. You got to center the white person. How are you navigating that? I mean, I just don't. P-Valley doesn't have that. <laughs> I don't think that's even in the script. Yeah, I just don't deal with that. Yeah. I mean, I think I have a, I'm very forthright. 
when I come in and I pitch and I, you know, talk to these network executives and I think their forthrightness possibly turns them on. Um, I feel as though the best work, the best anything, um, anything that you create, it can only be good if it come is coming from an individual who has a very particular vision. And whatever that vision is, the, the, the network, the studio, they just have to buy into that vision and let you do your thing. I must say, I don't know whether they were just going through a lot of stuff <laughs> at, the, at the company, but they did not, you know, meddle with my story and what I want to say at all. There was like, Oh, she ain't ran no show before. Oh, give her $50 million, whatever. We'll see how it works. Wow, fantastic. But that is because of, you know, the people working at that place. It has nothing to do. Now, I would say it's changing in that, you know, um, the president of STARS, Chris Albrecht, who is the person who greenlit my show, um, ended up um, walking away from the company because there's, I don't think he was on on the same page with the the new buyers Lionsgate which came in and bought the company so he walked away um Marta Fernandez who was my network executive ended up um because Chris walked away shifting over uh, she's now the head of television at Macro which is Charles Charles King's company mm -hmm. um because they were they saw that there was like this sea change happening where I would say probably Lionsgate is not interested in um niche programming and niche stories um, I'm waiting to see if that's true or not. So I got kind of caught in this unfortunate space where, you know, I remember six days before my first day of shooting, they called. I was like, well, you got to take a million dollars out of your budget. I'm like, where'd they do that at? Like six days before I fucking shoot and you're telling me I have to cut a million? I barely have enough as it is. And a I mean, people listening to this and be like, me, girl, shut up. But like, it, that money, it can be spread really, really thinly. And it, like, to, for, to do eight episodes of a TV show with that many series regulars, with that many stunts, with that many, like we would have like 300 extras per day because it's said in a strip club. Right. Like you cannot come and snatch money away. And it was because, you know, that thing of value, like, well, you don't need that. So we're going to nickel and dime you. Like if it had been, you know, the previous guard, they would have been like, maybe can we give her more? Because we understand what she's trying to do. I always feel like, you know, women's stories and black folk stories are the first to get nickel and dimed. Um, I, I, I don't know what I did. Oh, I think I told on them. I called my agent. <laughs> I was like, mm -mm. Um, which is sad that I don't have her right now because you know we're going. We have to fire our agents because of you know the, oh, the pending strike. Right. So it's, it's like ah. But anyway, I called her and I was like, God, they trying to you know take money away from me. And she called and you know she you know cussed and fussed and then I got a call within six hours and they were like, okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna okay, touch your budget. Well, that's good. That's a good story. <laughs> um, but it's interesting, you know, my agent's a black woman who's like, yeah, very much you know in alignment with what I'm trying to say. And, and, awesome. and supporting my stories, and you know, it's this like there's not that many of her out there, right? So who is that? Ashley Holland. Okay, yeah. Well, so we like I, her. Yeah, we like her. <laughs> we love her. Uh, I was like, I miss you. I'm like, when is this gonna be over? This whole like, I don't know. Right. I'm actually going to. Um, we're negotiating our contract 
renegotiating our contract again. So I have to go to the Writers Guild tonight and, you know, get the, the lowdown on what's happening. This is Tanya Pinkins. Thank you for listening to part one of my interview with Katori Hall. Part two is coming up next. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.